Malachi chapter 1. We'll start in verse 6. Today we're going to go through verse 14, the end of the chapter. But I just want to call our attention back to the backdrop of really what Malachi is. And it comes from the, the, very, the, the second verse, first and second verse specifically. God says, I have loved you. He's talking to Israel. I have loved, that's the burden of Malachi, the love of God. That's what he's come. It all starts with God. It starts with his love for Israel. It starts with his chosen people, but he chose them. It starts with God. And Israel is doubting God's love for them. And so God demonstrates his faithful love. He reminds them of his love for them by reminding them of their ancestors, Jacob and Esau. And in essence, he's looking Israel. I, I feel like knee to knee, you know, sitting down, looking right into their eyes. And he's saying basically this, I could have chosen Esau, but I didn't. I chose you. I love you. And when you see how much I love you played all, played out in what's going on in the world around you, even with the Edomites, your brother's people, even in all of that sort of thing, when you see my love displayed, it will cause you to worship. It will cause you to say that my name is great beyond the border of Israel. And so the first five verses is just God addressing Israel in general, answering their questions, reminding them of his great love for them. And now in the rest of the chapter, and even into chapter 2, he kind of shifts his focus a little bit. Though he's talking to the whole of the people, he's shifting his focus to the priests of Israel. The people who were supposed to be Israel's spiritual leaders. And here's a sad irony in this. In chapter 2, verse 7, God says that the priests are to be his messengers, the messengers of the Lord of hosts. But these messengers are the ones who needed to receive a message of rebuke from God's messenger, Malachi, whose name means my messenger. And as we read, I think you'll notice that there is a disconnect here between what the priests said and what they actually did, their actions and behavior did not coincide with their belief system, what they said they believed anymore. So let's look at verses 6 through 14. We'll read those together and then pray. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 9. And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And you bring this as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word today, very likely it's going to cause a stirring in our hearts. It's going to cause us to look with some introspection and to see the motivation for worship in our hearts. And Lord, if we're found lacking in any way, I pray that it would not drive us to despair, to give up, but it would drive us faster and deeper into the arms of Christ. I pray as we look at some of the failures of man and perhaps have a glimpse of them in our own lives, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be moved by our great need but by Jesus' big sacrifice and that we would put our faith and trust in him alone. In his name we pray today, amen. Now if you look at verse 6, it would seem like the priests are calling God their father. So God says, if I'm, a, if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my reverence? Where's my fear? So it seems like the priests have been calling God their father, but they're not living like it. They're not living like he is their father and they are his sons. The Lord asks, he says, if I'm a father, where's my honor? Now, of course, we recognize the, the allusion back to the fifth commandment. You guys remember what the fifth commandment is, right? Honor your father and your mother. Okay, that's commandment number five. Honor them. Well, how does an, how does a child honor their parents? Well, in a lot of different ways, we can do that. We can honor and dishonor them. But I would say it's it's very similar to the way that a person glorifies God Himself. And how do we glorify God by loving Him and obeying Him? How do we honor our parents by loving them and obeying them? So God's already made the, con- the convincing case as a father of his unfailing love, his faithful love to his children, to Israel, to his chosen ones. And so he's not wrong to say, wait a second here, guys. If you recognize me as your father, then why don't you honor me like you're supposed to? Why don't you honor me like a child, like a son or a daughter? And if you serve me as, as a master, then why don't you give me the reverence that a master deserves? Why don't you fear me in that way? You can maybe remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Master is another term for that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Someone can profess Jesus as Lord and Master without actually submitting to him. This is, as Jason mentioned in our Sunday school class this morning, this is professing without possessing. You say it but it's not yours. God is not really your father, even though you say he is. So he says, well, where is my honor? Where is my fear? 
don't you remember all the ways that I've shown love to you? I chose you. I love you. Don't you remember all the ways in which I've given you victory over the enemies around you? A son honors his father by protecting his father's reputation too, doesn't he? By acting and living in a way that's not irreverent towards him, in a way that would not bring criticism or contempt upon the father's reputation. Yet this is what the priests are being accused of. O priests who despise my name. This is what he says in verse 6. Look at his answer, or look at their answer to him. They say, but wait a second. How have we despised your name? We don't understand. We don't get it. So not only do the people of God as a whole not recognize God's enduring love towards them, but their spiritual leaders are blind to it as well. And this is played out in a most disturbing way even affecting how the spiritual leaders of Israel lead the people of Israel in worship. Instead of living lives set apart for a service, these priests were guilty of breaking the very law they were supposed to teach and obey. Now, throughout the book of Malachi, we find this sneaky and pernicious pride, this wicked, evil pride within the hearts and minds of Israel from the people to the priests. The way the priests were serving the Lord, according to God, was a disgrace to his name. And so God brings this case against him, against them. And rather than admit their sin, confess it, repent of it, and turn away from it back to God, they don't even believe God and what he's saying. Whoa, 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 wait a second. How are we disgracing your name? We're not doing that. Just prove it to us, right? Prove to prove to us your love. That was last week. Now they're saying, wait a second, prove to us our sin. They're just not even believing that they're guilty of wrongdoing at all. How have we despised your name? They don't seem to have a clue as to what God is talking about. And so look at verse 7. God explains. It's not that complicated. He says, by offering polluted food on my altar or on my table. Here's a little conversation that we see. The priest then responds, wait a second, how have we despised you? God answers again by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Remember, these priests, they hadn't given up their, their duties in the temple. They were offering sacrifices. The people were bringing sacrifices. They hadn't just given up on it. So what was the big problem? What was the big deal? The sacrifices they were offering were unworthy of God. So their worship had come to be nothing more than a ritual instead of a right response to a relationship, a close relationship with God. And it seems to me like even today, that's the problem with religion. With religion. See, the priests, they were willing to make an offering, but they weren't willing to give God their best offering. They were content to do something for God, but only if it didn't cost them that much. Only if it wasn't inconvenient to their schedule. The table or the altar that's listed here in verse 6, 7, and 8, it it says that the table of the Lord is despised. That's what verse 8 says. In the same way that the name of the Lord was despised in verse 6. The priest had despised God's name by despising his table. Some other translations say, in that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. 
by treating the table of the Lord as if it is of no importance. By saying the table of the Lord is of no value. Do you see the problem here? How do they treat the Lord's table as if it has no importance? Look at verses 8 and 9. So under Mosaic law, the animals that were to be placed upon the altar should be without spot or blemish. And of course, this is a foreshadowing of Christ. The unblemished, spotless lamb offered once and for all. Okay, but they were supposed to offer animals without spot or blemish. They should have been the finest of the flock. Are you with me on this? They should have been the best of what they had. Apparently, though, we see some evidence here of the priests maybe taking those for themselves, keeping the finest animals for themselves, and bringing to the altar, what does he say, blind, lame, and sick animals. So this act of theirs created contempt for the altar of the Lord, and it tarnished his name. And so God says, you despise my altar, you despise my name, you despise me. Their actions in regard to sacrifice and worship reflected how much or how little value they placed on the name of God. They had lost the sense of what real worship is and were content to not only go through the motions, but to give God less than what he deserved. God considered this action of the priests. He didn't say it was a bad idea. He didn't say it was harmful. What does he call it? You can see it in the text. Two different times he says, this is evil. It's This is an evil to treat me in this way. Despise, the Hebrew word is bazaar. Despised is from the root meaning to give little worth to something, to disdain or to hold something in contempt. The priests undervalued both God and his altar, and this implies contempt for both of those things, for who God is. Now, would you believe, based on our message last week about Jacob and Esau, would you believe that the very first word in Scripture of despise, to use that word, is in the story of Jacob and Esau. The first time that word is used, it says Esau despised his birthright. And he sold it for a bowl of soup and a piece of bread. He despised it. And now the Israelites, and specifically the priests, are despising the name of God. They're treating it with contempt, of no value, of being worthless. And they were guilty of treating God that way. To put it... Another way, they were intentionally giving God the leftovers. This is a true story I read this week. You guys know what the Butterball Turkey Company is? Well, years ago, when they had the call-in helpline, um, somebody, a lady called in and she said, Look, I've had this Butterball Turkey in my freezer for 23 years. Is it safe to eat? Can I cook it and eat it? And they said, actually, it would be. You could you could eat it, but we don't really recommend it because at that length of time, probably isn't going to taste like it should. It's not going to hurt you, but it probably just lost most of its flavor. So she says, okay, that's kind of what I expected. I'll just go ahead and give it to the church then. It's a true story. So please, 
If you're going to make an offering to the church, don't shove a Twinkie in the offering box. And please don't give us a 23-year-old frozen turkey. Okay? That, it's 10 years. Yeah. That's a threshold. The threshold is 10 years in your freezer. Okay? She was guilty of giving her old leftovers to church, right? She wasn't giving the best. Well, no one else will want it, so I'll just give it to them. Right? That's humorous, but what's going on in Malachi is not. And the priests are guilty of far worse than giving an old turkey to the church. They're, they're, they're guilty of profaning the name and character of God by how they were enacting worship, by what they were offering to God. They were, they were guilty of serving God their leftovers. They doubted his love and the priests and the people became negligent and half-hearted in their worship. They were offering defective animals for sacrifice and the priests who were responsible for inspecting those animals and offering up unblemished ones to God were just accept, accepting them with no problem. And so God sent Malachi to rebuke them for offering him careless and leftover worship. I wonder, maybe we need to make this personal. Are you offering God less than your best? Here's three simple questions that we can ask regarding our own worship and service to God. Number one, are we giving God first? Are we giving God our best? Are we offering God a sacrifice that actually costs us something? Or just that old turkey in the freezer that we don't even want anymore. Back 10 years ago, in September of 2012, in one of our very first home team small groups, we went through the book Crazy Love by uh, Francis Chan. The fifth chapter of that book, if any of you have read it before, you might remember, is actually titled Serving Leftovers to a Holy God, and it talks about this situation in Malachi. I want to read a little bit of what Francis Chan writes there. He says this, The priests of Malachi's day thought their sacrifices were sufficient. They had spotless animals, but chose to keep those for themselves and give their less desirable animals to God. They assumed God was pleased because they had sacrificed something, God described this practice as evil. Leftovers are not merely inadequate. From God's point of view, and lest we forget, his is the only one who matters, they're evil. Let's stop calling it a busy schedule or bills or forgetfulness. It's called evil. As convicting as this is, we should take it to heart because what we offer to God reveals what we think about him. Offering your best reveals that you think very highly of him, of his name, of his worth, of his character, of his holiness. And offering him our leftovers reveal we care very little about who God is. The Lord goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, the sacrifices they were giving, they weren't even fit to give to one of their human authorities. He, he mentions their governor. He says, give, it to the, give this kind of thing to your governor. What is he going to do? Is he going to accept that from you? Is he going to appreciate that? Should you expect favor when you bring him your leftovers? No. Obviously, no. How can you consider giving to a human authority something far better than what you're offering God, who has all authority and all power in all the universe? 
When you offer gifts and sacrifices like these, can you expect God to show you favor? This is what Malachi is getting at. I think some of Charles Spurgeon's words help us here. He says, For God to accept our devotions while we are delighting in sin would be to make himself the God of hypocrites, which is a fitter name for Satan than for the Holy One of Israel. So priests, Israelites, Christians, take this stuff seriously. And if it wasn't clear enough, God goes on, verses 10 and 11, to put it plainly, Malachi told these disobedient priests that it would be better to just close the doors of the temple and stop all sacrifices than just to continue practicing hypocrisy. And just going through the motions, just bringing something rather than the best. He says it'd be better to just put out the fires, close the doors, and be done. Now, obviously, that's not what God would want, but he says if if that's all you're offering, that would be better. Baptist pastor and an author, Warren Worsby, once said, if our concept of God is so low that we think he's pleased with cheap, half-hearted worship, then we don't know the God of the Bible. Listen to this. This struck me this week. In fact, a God who encourages us to do less than our best is a God who isn't worthy of worship. What does God say? He says, I have no pleasure in you. He says, I am not pleased with you at all in your half-hearted worship. It would be better for you to stop everything than to keep offering sacrifices that are insincere. Now look at verse 10. He says, I will not accept an offering from your hand. Or another version says, from your hands I find no offerings acceptable. It would seem that Israel did not learn its lesson from 70 years in Babylonian captivity. Because Jeremiah wrote something very similar to this in Jeremiah 6.20. These are in your notes. He says, your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices not pleasing to me. Isaiah Chapter 1, verse 11, something very similar. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. What we offer to the Lord and how we offer it are both directly related to what we think and believe about him. Verse 11 is a promise. This is that verse that Jason's going through with the kids here. This is a promise of God. It's one I think that was partially played out in Old Testament Israel, but I think fully will be revealed on the day of the Lord. There's three analogies that Malachi uses for the term everywhere or at all times, from the rising of the sun to its setting, in every place, and then among the nations, he says a couple of times. What's going to happen? From the rising of the sun to its setting, in every place, among all the nations, what's going to happen? Two times he says it. My name will be great. My name will be great. I will be respected and revered and loved. And this is in stark contrast to what he's accusing the priests of, isn't he? Isn't it? He's accusing the priest of despising his name, of not revering his name or fearing him. They were not treating the name of the Lord with reverence and fear, but with disrespect and disdain and spite. 
but it's going to be great. And not just among the nation of Israel, but what does he say? He says, among the nations, among the Gentiles, among the heathens, those who don't know Jesus at that point, know Christ at that point, don't know the Lord. And he says it's going to happen, but not just for a little while, not just like for a week, everybody's going to know and respect the Lord, but it's going to happen from the rising to the setting sun in all places at all times, forever. Continually, all day long, God's name has been great. It is great and it will be great. And this is what they're getting at here. A day is coming when all people everywhere will recognize and respond with proper reverence to his great name and worth. It's coming. It may not be fully here yet, but it's coming when his name will be seen as great. Look at verse 12 with me. This restates what the people and the priests have been accused of in the previous verses. He says, you profane the name of the Lord when you treat worship with such flippancy. You defile his table when you sacrifice things of little value. You despise the Lord when you give him your leftover worship. And verse 13 says, but you say, what a weariness this is. So they're not even defending themselves anymore. They're not even asking, wait a second, how have we done that? Now they're just like, I'm just tired of this. This is just, I'm just weary from this. What a weary this, weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord. The heart of the people, the heart of the priests is revealed here. Worship is a weariness to them. They're tired of what real worship requires. And now they're snorting at the thought of it. That just means that they're turning their nose up at it. You guys understand that when it's something that you don't like kids, you're offered some meal from your parents that they've slaved over and you're like, I don't want to eat that. You're snorting at it. You're turning up your nose at it. Like I'm, I don't want that. That does not seem good to me. And this is what the people of God or the the Israelites were doing to the Lord himself. They're turning their nose up at it, at him and saying, I don't really want you. But Galatians six, nine reminds us, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do not grow weary in doing good. It's one thing to be tired from the work. It's another thing to be tired of the work, right? If we've been guilty of bringing God leftover worship, it's possible that we are in need of personal spiritual revival. I think personal revival is kind of like remodeling your house in a way stick with me on this takes longer than you hope right there's no quick fix for treasuring god as we ought to it requires repenting and trusting and working to see and honor god properly it you know it takes longer than we hope it also costs more than we plan for giving god our best will sometimes require that we abandon ungodly wrong relationships might force us to realign what we spend our time on what we spend our hobbies doing what our lifestyle is built around personal revival is also kind of like remodeling a house and that it makes a bigger mess than you thought possible you can't overlook sin in your life you have to deal with it and it gets messy when you do 
but you can't make improvements if everything just stays the same, right? And so you have to go about the work. Even though you know these things, it has to be done. Look at verse 14 with me. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. This this verse has Ananias and Sapphira vibe to it, if you know what I mean. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, this was husband and wife. They sold some land and then conspired between the two of them to lie about how much money they were going to give to the church. And so the husband comes in and he says, hey, we sold this land. We got this much for it. Here, here it is. And the elders of the church say, why do you lie to God? And Ananias falls over dead. And it says, while they're, they're taking him out, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. Sapphira comes in and she says the same thing and she falls over dead. What was the problem? Well, the problem wasn't how much they gave. In fact, the elders explain this when they're talk, talking to Ananias before he dies. This is not how much you got for the land. It's not how much you're giving us. It's that you're lying about it. It's that you're telling us, you're telling God you're going to give him one thing, but then you offering some, offer him something lesser. That was the big problem problem with the people in Malachi was that they had proper animals for the sacrifice. Look at what he says in verse 14. You have, he has a male in his flock and he vows it. He promises to give that to God and then instead he gives him something else. That's, that's the bait and switch, isn't it? I'm going to give you this, but then when it comes time, I'm going to offer something lesser instead. Can you imagine telling your 15 almost 16-year-old child that you're going to get them a car for their 16th birthday. And that day rolls around and they are so excited and you give them a little wrapped box and they open it expecting to find car keys and they find one of your old Hot Wheels instead. Maybe this has actually happened. I don't know. So I, I do not mean to give parents ideas here. Can you imagine if this is like a legitimate thing that your child was expecting? The disappointment, the just feelings that they would have. Would they accept it? My guess is, if you try this, Jason, that you're going to get a hot wheel in the face. That's my guess. <laughs> okay, you're wiser than that. Would a child, op- would your 16-year-old kid open that and, and expecting car keys to something that they could literally drive and take around and, and be happy about a used Hot Wheel? No way. Not going to happen. We'll wait till you're 15 and a half and see if you answer the same way, Noah. Right now, maybe that would be cool. Probably not when you're 16. But if it's not good enough for your 16-year-old, why would we think that God's okay with that kind of thing? That we say, I'm gonna give you, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wake up early on Sunday and I'm gonna get ready so I can be in a good state of mind when I get to church. And then you hit the snooze four times and then you're running around screaming your head off trying to get the family ready and then you show up, paint on a smile and go through the motions all over again. It happens. Don't get me wrong. But is that our best? Is that what God desires from his people? If it's not good enough, for for the the governor or for your 16-year-old kid, don't offer it to God. Offer him the best. Offer him something that he expects, especially if you're going to promise it. What's the criteria for us actually delivering on what we promise? What does he say there at the very end, the last phrase of verse 14? 
For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. He's not like the kings of Israel, who were good, some of them, for a while. He's not like the surrounding kings of the surrounding nations, who weren't good. His name will be great among all of them, among everyone in the whole world, not just now, but forever. It will be feared, it will be respected, it will be recognized among all the nations. Israel not only missed the boat here in Malachi, but they missed it when Jesus came as well. They rejected him, they refused to believe, and the message of the gospel was sent out then to all the nations, to the Gentiles, to the heathen, if you will, so that God's name will be great among all the nations, and from the, it will be great from the rising to the setting sun. For us today, the reality is that we can miss the boat just like Israel did. And many of us do. We may not be showing this degree of contempt toward God, but you know what? Sometimes we are just a little too casual in our worship. And I don't mean the kind of clothes you wear. Okay? Sometimes we're just too casual in our worship. We don't revere or fear God as we ought to. We don't stand in awe of him properly. Think about this. When you're out shopping and you go through the store and you're, let's say you got your list out and you're going and you're, you're going to buy some paper products, paper plates, napkins, toilet paper, all that stuff. You probably don't put a little, a lot of thought into those items. Go get that. That'll work. That'll work. That's cheap. That'll work. Okay. But if you're going to go buy a new pair of jeans that you want to fit right, or let's even take it a step further. If you're going to go buy a new car, if you're going to, if you're going to put a down payment down and purchase a home, you're going to spend a little time researching, right? You're going to spend a little time evaluating. What is this going to cost me? What am I going to do here to be able to look into getting this? It's not like paper goods. You're going to spend some time on it. So when you come to worship, is, is it like you're shopping for a new car or a house? Or are you shopping for a box of Kleenexes? What kind of effort are you putting in? What kind of thought process are you going through and preparing for worship? Now, don't misunderstand me here. The point is not to, to hide in a corner and tuck our tail between our legs because we're unworthy and because we've messed this up. Because every one of us has. Yours truly included. I'm not suggesting an unhealthy fear of God that would cause us to run from him and cower in fear in the corner and avoid him. That happens and it, it it does, but that's, that's not what I'm referring to here. When I talk about the fear of the Lord, what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that somehow and sometimes we should just pause and consider the worth, the power, and value of God Almighty as we not just come through these doors on Sunday morning to worship, but as you get out of bed in the morning, and I realize tomorrow's Monday, it's coming. But as you roll out of bed in the morning tomorrow, some of you early, what's going to be on your mind? The worth of God? I hope so. He's worthy of every bit of worship, every bit of effort that you can put towards understanding him. If you're going to put effort into understanding a new home that you buy or a new car that you bought, you better put in some work to understand who God is and how he relates and loves you. 
before you just come rushing in to worship or before you roll out of bed and start the day grumpy, consider the worth of God. How should you respond to this? Commentator G. Campbell Morgan helps us understand this more. I want to read a quote from him. This is in your notes. It's possible to attend to the temple, bend the knee, and make an offering regularly. But unless there's love in the heart, there's no communion with God. To go to the temple merely as a matter of duty is to blaspheme. To carry offerings to the house of God simply because it's commanded is to be guilty of sacrilege. Now hear this. There's only one motive sufficiently strong to maintain the relation between the heart of God and the heart of man, and that is love. When these people lost their love for Jehovah God, all their religious observances became as tinkling brass and a clanging cymbal, noise without music. And you get that analogy in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. What does love look like? The motivation's got to be out of love because if it's anything else, anything else, it's just noise without music. Now, I imagine you've been there before. I've been there before. Where you're going through the motions, you come to church and praise God for faithfulness in church attendance. This is where we need to be together with the body. So I don't want to say, well, just don't come if you're not feeling it. Right, Because sometimes you don't feel it until you get here and are encouraged by brothers and sisters. Where you really sense the presence of God among his people. But if you've been there before, if you've felt like you're just ringing the bell, it's all noise but without music, all obligation but without love, I'd encourage you to reorient your thoughts today concerning the worth and majesty of God. Reorient your priorities concerning the worth and holiness of God. Revelation 4.11, Revelation 4.8, these are songs that will be sung for eternity. Listen to what they say. He is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power, for he created all things, and by his will they existed and were created. He is worthy, brothers and sisters. Chapter 4, verse 8 of Revelation. He is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You want to know the incredible thing about this? That's pretty incredible in and of itself that, that God is that. But the incredible thing about this is in his worthiness, in his patience, in his power, in his love, God is still calling and bringing in sons and daughters into his family to love him, to revere him, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And when we begin to see God for who he really is, we won't, we can't help but fall down and worship. We can't help but honor and respect and revere his name for what it truly is. His name has been great. His name is great and his name will be great. And brothers and sisters, those listening today, he's wrapped you into that plan. And our prayer and my hope is that you would not just submit to him, but then go and live in light of that glory of God, stretching the boundaries of our relationships and saying, who do I know that needs to know this God? Because I can't keep it in. He's too good for me to offer second best leftovers. So bring your best to him. Let's pray.
Lord, it's awfully easy to roll out of bed, even on a Sunday morning, the day that we kind of count as the day, your day, it's, it's awfully easy to roll out of bed and not think immediately of your greatness and worth. And so I need you to reorient my thoughts and my priorities and to touch my heart yet again with the Spirit to remind me of your greatness and worth. My brothers and sisters need it too, Lord. And so I pray that you would do that in our hearts today. Maybe we've been guilty of that. Maybe we even walked through the doors today guilty of giving you our leftover worship. Lord, I pray that we would not run and cower in fear. That's not what you would have. But you would have us run back to you in reverence and in holy fear, but also recognizing the backdrop of all of this, which is what you spoke to Israel and what you're speaking to our hearts even now. It's this, I have loved you. It's your great love, Lord. And then that creates this ability in us to love you back. And so I pray that we would do that not for everybody to see that just boasts our pride and puffs us up, Lord, but that we would really love you when it counts and where it counts. In our homes, when no one's watching, when it's just us and our families, Lord, that you would help us to remain faithful by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.